0: I think for a lot of people, it's this realization of like, at, at least it's for me, that like the choices you make are consequential in a way that sometimes don't feel that way in modern life.
1: The future is terrifying. Still, the future is what's on everybody's minds right now. When will I be able to return to the office? When will the economy rebound? Will it rebound? Who will I be a year from now? Who will we be? Does this pandemic bring us closer or does it tear us apart? When I think about the future of our planet and our future too, there's only one person I really wanna talk to. His name is Alexis Madrigal. Alexis and his wife, Sarah Rich, live in Oakland, California. He's a staff writer for The Atlantic. He writes frequently about technology and the future. He's the author of numerous books and the host of containers, a podcast about how shipping containers transformed the global economy. We produced it together back in 2018. He's also the co-founder of the COVID Tracking Project, a site the first of its kind to provide comprehensive and real-time data state-by-state of COVID test results. We had a lot to catch up on. Alexis, it's great to talk to you, man.
0: Hey, man, it's so good to talk with you. It's It's been too long, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree. We talked about the cultural impact of the virus on our global economy, how he's making a difference in these uncertain times, and what we might be able to learn from this moment when all is said and done. From Neon Hum Media, this is Telescope. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the foreseeable future, we're gonna bring you stories of people who are far away, up close, and how each of us are learning to live through this pandemic. When I first reached out to Alexis, he told me that days barely felt to him like days anymore, that he was so busy that each hour felt like an opportunity to catch up on something, to do more. And this crazy time that he's in right now, it started about 10 days before the realities of coronavirus really set in for people in the US. Well,
0: you know, I'll take it back all the way to March 2nd. March 2nd, I had just done some yoga on Peloton. I was feeling great. I pulled out my phone and I saw some tweets from a guy named Trevor Bedford, uh, who uh, studies like viral evolution uh, up in Seattle, in which he basically laid out the premise that SARS CoV 2, you know, the virus that causes COVID 19, had been um, moving around Washington in full on community spread for weeks already by the time we got to uh, March 2nd. And what that really meant was that there there was probably community transmission across the United States. Um, that has turned out to be completely true now in retrospect. And that sent me looking for, like, well, why don't we know this? Like, why do we have all these um, cases? And so I talked about it with my colleague Rob Meyer at The Atlantic, and he's like, listen, based on what we know, like, what if... We were on the Army Corps of Engineer beat, and it's five days before Katrina. Like, what the fuck are we doing? And I was like, oh man, what are we doing? And on March 4th, the president and some advisors had gone out talking about um, that there were a million tests available.
1: Uh, we want people to get tested. Over a million tests are out, uh, thanks to the diligent work of CDC and HHS. More than four million will go out this week.
0: And we were like, a million tests. That's interesting. How many tests do you think we've done? And we realized that the state health departments were reporting this, how many tests that they had done. Uh, At least some of them were. And the rest we could call. So we split up the states, we start calling all these places. And by Friday, we're able to publish that less than 2,000 people had been tested. And what that meant was we were absolutely blind, blind, blind going into the outbreak, um, even as late as March 6th. We just had no idea where it was. And of course, over the next um, few weeks, it was revealed that it was everywhere. Right after we published that story, uh, I got an email from my friend, Jeff Hammerbacher, who was a dude who I spent a bunch of time with in college. And he beca- he went into bioinformatics and he, minutes after we published this article, emailed me and it's like, hey, did you use my spreadsheet uh, for this? And I was like, uh, no, we made our own spreadsheet. And we realized that we'd actually been doing the same thing, tracking these tests, and he had built a much more rigorous system, because he was a data scientist. So we decided to team up then, and we started putting out these numbers day over day, day over day, day over day, and we thought immediately that the CDC would just come in and they would of course put out these numbers on a state-by-state basis of how many people were being tested, and there would be this data set, and everyone could use it, and we just thought we'd be doing it for a few days. But as the days went on, we realized like, oh my god. The, the, the government's not coming. There is no cavalry. We are the cavalry. This is it. Is This volunteer effort is the only number you could find in America for how many people have been tested. Testing numbers nationwide are still lagging. New York has conducted roughly 7,000 tests since the outbreak. North Carolina's public labs have only done about 300.
1: But as of right now and yesterday, anybody that needs a test, that's the important thing. And the tests are all perfect. Like the letter was perfect. The transcription was perfect, right? This was not as perfect as that, but pretty
0: good. Deep in me, I imagine that in the worst circumstance that the U.S. would actually have a pretty good response, that we have this great technocracy, our public health system is so solid, and I feel disillusioned in a way that is actually, like, highly reminiscent of things that I've heard from people... Uh, who went through the Vietnam War period? I did not think of myself as someone who was sort of like naive about the US and its aims at, on a foreign policy level. But I did think, even after all this time, that on a domestic level and like as a society, that like the US, when the chips were down and push came to shove would really show up well, you know, that like we would get over our stupid political things and we would just do the right thing. And I suppose that that has sort of happened in the sense that there's social distancing across the country and all this kind of stuff. But, but man, did we botch this thing so bad and we botched it in a way that was so much worse than other countries um, that is, it, it's sort of stunning, you know. Like, we got the benefit of seeing all these countries making the same set of mistakes, and, of course, and also some countries who didn't make these mistakes, and yet we just blundered on ahead and made even worse mistakes. And it just kind of showed, I think, how, like, um, corroded the federal government has become, um, both in the current administration, but also just a kind of hollowing out over the years and just, like, many decades of people talking about how government was incompetent. Um, at a certain point, like, that becomes
1: (laughs) more true. So in this effort to sort of get an accurate picture of who's actually being tested for this disease, you started to compile all of this data, and it turns into what we now know is the COVID tracking project. That sounds like a lot for one or two people to handle.
0: What's insane about this It's kind of like running—I mean, I live in Oakland. It's kind of like running, like, the Oakland branch of the CDC, you know? I mean, it's like this insane piece of the public picture, you know, used by all kinds of media outlets. And we hear from government officials and everybody else who is using this data to understand what's going on. And we're just some volunteers, you know? It wasn't even really part of my official job at The Atlantic until uh, this last Friday. Um, So it's like— been for me on a personal level just insane you know just uh, there there's no way that I can stop working on it we have a ton of volunteers who are in they're all amazing super talented but like at the end of the day somebody has to like run the thing somebody has to like make the decisions and bring in the money and as it turned out like I'm that person in this and yet, I also have the kids, and I have my wife who also has a full time job, which is super ramped up. And the, the, this just, I don't even know, I haven't really talked about this that much, but just like this insane feeling of like, wait, like I'm now this quasi official part of this response and cannot stop doing this thing. And yet, like, I am also just like a dude in my sweatpants in Oakland with a family. And what am I going to do? It's just been extremely hard and also extremely unexpected because we weren't, you know, before March 7th, I wasn't part of this thing. I didn't sign up to work for the CDC. You know, I'm not a first responder. I mean, we've had some, Sarah and I have had some really tough conversations where I'm like, I know that I'm like failing this family right now in some crucial ways. And what can we do? Like, what what am I supposed to do in this circumstance? You know?
1: Yeah, Alexis, I can't really imagine the sort of the weight you must feel right now trying to keep up with this rapidly changing crisis and the response to it. But it also seems to me that you're sort of like making the right choices. And making a difference in this moment. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that are at home who are grateful for the sacrifices that you're making. And they have to be wondering what they're supposed to be doing right now. Like, how can they be making a difference too?
0: Not everyone can contribute to making the situation better. Some people got to just survive. In fact, most people. But if, like, you happen to find yourself in my position with a public voice and with this platform that has been created and there's even some small chance that you can make things better for people in this country and around the world it's like not a moral option to not do that you know what i mean like you this is big enough and bad enough that like you don't get to opt out if it's possible for you to have a positive effect
1: you've spent a lot of your career talking about tech and about the future Um, You and I even spent some of that time together talking about the future of the industrial economy and the global supply chain. And I wonder how our vision of the world has changed in your eyes because of COVID.
0: There's an interesting thing going on right now because there are... A, a substantial set of people out there who want to respond to this as individuals and don't want all community responses, who want to open up that, the economy back up and put all of the risk onto the most, you know, uh, vulnerable people to not get themselves sick. And I I find that, like, so repugnant and I, I find it so... Um, just undefendable, particularly because it's like, you know, you look at so many indigenous cultures and like the elders are held up as this, you know, really, you know, just backbone of the community. Um, And then you think about what that attitude implies towards elders in the US, and it just says to me like, man, we've built a really unnatural way of thinking about each other and the world and our communities if like there's a huge chunk of people in America who are like, all the old people? Oh well, you know what I mean? Because that is, that is kind of what you're saying if you don't want to gather as a community to protect people. But on the positive side, something that has occurred to me and my, my wife first said it to me, she said like that it was so strange for everyone on earth to be experiencing the same thing all at once. Two things I've been thinking about on that One is, like, astronauts oftentimes say that when they fly up out of the Earth and they look down, they see, like, the whole planet as one thing. And they even started calling it the overview effect. Kind of going to the very opposite scale, the other way that you get that overview effect is to realize that this virus, which isn't even alive— um, and it's at the tiniest scale, the opposite of the global scale, also shows the same sense of connection that we all share with each other in that we're human beings connected by all these systems and we're all vulnerable in the same way um, and our political boundaries mean absolutely nothing to this virus. Um, and that 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 has given me a weird kind of hope, like that maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in like the kind of information sphere that is so degraded and corrosive like in the United States, but that as a globe, as everyone together, that there's some foundational shift that people realize you actually can't have a global economy without having some version of a global society because we're all kind of in this one together, you know?
1: I wonder in a moment like this, how, how it's going to affect the culture, six, seven, eight months, a year, two years down the road. Um, is that shift the one that you're speculating on? Is, is there a possibility that it could have real concrete changes to the, way that we, to the way that we look at our culture and the way that we, at least, especially how we look at our culture as Americans?
0: It's got
1: to, got
0: to, got to create a little more of a communitarian impulse within Americans. One of my colleagues, Ed Young, one of his sources, you know, said that natural disasters tend to uh, bring us together, but pandemics tend to tear us apart. And so, my other thing that I've thought a lot about is fighting that impulse to be torn apart by this. That if that's the natural cast of things and we need to set ourselves against that. And what really struck me immediately once it all started to dawn on me in that first week of March about what was really going on, was that this was an opportunity to have like basically a a home front war, in which it was kind of like a war of care, you know? It wasn't about fighting some external enemy, because like, you can't fight the virus like that. Instead, it was a, a war to care for each other. I think for a lot of people, it's this realization of like, at, at least this is for me, that like, the choices you make are consequential in a way that sometimes don't feel that way in modern life, but the choices you make may be very consequential for your community. There's a historian at Stanford called Richard White, and he talked a lot about, you know, epidemics and fires sweeping through American cities in the late 19th century. And the ultimate outcome of that was the creation of kind of the progressive city and public health in general um, and water systems and fire systems that covered all citizens. Because what people realized in, you know, these uh, urbanizing uh, American areas was that the city— sailed or sank as a whole and you could not save some of the people or make life good for some of the people because ultimately infectious disease and fire uh involve us all and that the systems you build have to protect everyone and so for me it's been about that how do we protect everyone and how do we resist the impulse to be to be torn apart by this instead of
1: brought together A big thank you to Alexis Madrigal for joining us on the show today. You can find out more about the COVID Tracking Project, which was incubated by The Atlantic, at covidtracking.com. Telescope is made possible by the world-class team of producers, editors, and engineers that make up Neon Hum Media. John Asante is the managing producer of Telescope. Today's episode was produced by Tanner Robbins. It was edited by Catherine St. Louis and Vikram Patel. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Thanks to Matt McGinley for our theme music and to Blue Dot Sessions for additional music on this episode. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Media. We want to stay connected to you during this unprecedented time in our history, so please don't be shy. Share your stories with us. It may take us a minute to get back to you, but we will. Our DMs are always open. If you have a story of life in isolation because of the coronavirus, we do want to hear from you. You can email us at pitches at neonhum.com. And if you like the show, please be sure to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. Thank you for listening. And if you can, try to take a moment for yourself this weekend. Try to steal some joy in this stressful time. We'll see you on Monday.